Amen. Well, thank y'all uh, for joining me in prayer. Um, I do want to, again, say welcome. It is good to see you. You may have noticed that Pastor Corey is missing from uh, service today and his family. They are still dealing uh, with sickness uh, today. Uh, it's kind of been something that's been bounced around. Uh, the kids and Beth's been dealing with it. Uh, and apparently Corey went down yesterday with a fever and so he is not with us today. Uh, I did get a chance to talk to him yesterday, and it sounded like talking to the walking wounded. Uh, if you've ever talked to someone who feels sick and lethargic and they sound real raspy, uh, I was talking to him, and I was like, brother, just stay home. And he was like, no, I can make it. And I'm like, you're not going to make it anywhere sounding like that. And so uh, pray for him and his family as they rest, uh, that God's grace would be upon them, and they would feel better soon. Uh, because I know he misses being here. I know uh, if it were up to him, he would be here today, uh, but I'm thankful that he's home getting better and selfishly not passing on the rest of that mess to us. And so uh, just be in prayer for them as well. well. We are back in our second week of our study through the book of Ruth at a series that we have called uh, Daily Bread, where again, the goal has been to see the grace of God and that grace worked out in our daily lives, a grace that constantly points us to God and ultimately to the glory of God. And so this morning we are going to finish chapter one and really see uh, what it looks like for Naomi and for Ruth to begin to find grace at rock bottom. Now I want to ask you this morning, uh, how many of you guys have ever heard the phrase rock bottom before? Many of you probably, yeah, that was good. All of you raised your hands. That lets me know you're awake and alert this morning. Normally, I just get blank stares. So thanks be to God for those of you who raised your hands. I imagine many of you who raised your hands, you've probably heard people around you talk about that they are at rock bottom. Or better yet, you yourselves have probably said to others, pray for me because I feel like that I have hit rock bottom. Now, we know that that phrase itself, rock bottom, literally means at the lowest possible level. And so when this phrase is actually used, it reveals that we now believe it is not even possible for us to go lower than what we currently are or to go lower than what we are currently experiencing. We feel like we've hit that moment of grief, hit that moment of heartache, hit that moment of frustration where we can say, this is it. It has to be it. This is the bottom and we can't go any lower or it can't get any worse. Now, what's interesting is this. Believers in Jesus Christ, these are the moments where we become so angry or so frustrated or so saddened or so grieved that we simply want to look to God and say, God, just let me go. God, it's not worth it. God, I'm not worth it. Some of us have probably even said in that moment, God, I don't even know if you are worth it. I mean, let's just be honest for a moment. All of us have heard this phrase. Many of us acknowledge that we have heard this phrase. We've probably said this phrase ourselves. And I want to ask you this morning, have you ever been there before? Have you ever experienced what you thought was rock bottom? Maybe you, you haven't been there, but maybe you've been sliding down further and further into your own grief and into your own heartache and into your own frustration. And you just feel like this is a, a game of shoots and ladders where the shoot just never ends. Do you remember those thoughts? Do you remember the doubts? Do you remember the frustrations when it seems that nothing, and I mean nothing, is going right? Well, this is where we find Naomi in our story this morning. You see, Naomi had now hit rock bottom. 
She probably had the same thought about being let go of by God. In fact, we're going to read about that frustration and that heartache in just a moment. You see, for Naomi, there was nothing more for her to do. If you remember her story from last week, there was nothing more for her to do than to simply pack up what she had left and go home. And yet, even in the moment that we're about to read about, Naomi, whether she saw it or not, would experience grace. A grace that is still found at rock bottom. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would encourage you to join me in Ruth chapter 1. We're going to pick up this story in verse 6, kind of where we left off last week. Remember, we we teased verse 6. We're going to start there, and we're going to read the rest of the chapter all the way through uh, to verse 22. And I want to let you know that for our message this morning, we're going to talk about the story. And then once we get past the story, we're going to talk about the lessons that we can now learn from Ruth. So again, if you have found your place in the Bible and you can and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the word of God. Now this is the word of the Lord from the book of Ruth. In Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, we read, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said to her, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. 
Now, again, I want to let you know that we are going to walk back through this story together to make sure we understand what's going on. And then hopefully, by the time we get to the end of our text again this morning, we're going to be talking about four truths that we can now learn or four lessons that we can now learn from this particular part of our story. Now, again, this is a historical narrative, a short story. So in every section throughout the story, there should be some sort of lessons that we are learning as we read about Ruth and as we read about Naomi and again, as we get later in the chapters and we begin to see Boaz, the the third main character introduced to our story. Now, again, just to set the scene for you, Naomi has now found herself dealing with the consequences of some bad choices. Her husband is dead. Her two sons are now dead. All she was left with was the stuff that they brought. She was left with two Moabite daughter-in-laws and the wondering thought of where everything in her life has now gone wrong. You see, for Naomi, by this point in our story, Moab was no longer a viable place to live. And as we read last week, the famine was now over in the promised land and and food had now returned to the promised land, which, remember, was Naomi's home. And so Naomi had no choice but to return home to see if she could find really some purpose for living out the rest of her miserable life by her own words. But the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning is this, what should happen to Orpah? Or better yet, what should happen to Ruth? You see, they didn't want to leave Naomi, but would they be making the right choice if they went to Bethlehem? So again, I want us to pick up this story one more time in sections, and I want us to see as believers today, no matter where we find ourselves in the midst of our frustrations, in the midst of our hurts, in the midst of our heartache, in the midst of our confusion, you and I can still find grace even when we believe that we have now hit rock bottom. So look with me again at verse 6. We read that she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So clearly we are now seeing blessing has returned to the promised land. The people have repented, they have turned away from their faithlessness and their doubts, and they have returned to worshiping God who has always been faithful from the very beginning. And so Naomi hears this, and we learn in verse 7 that she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house, and may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And again they said to Naomi, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said to them, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Notice already in our story that Orpah and Ruth wanted to go with Naomi. They wanted to to be with Naomi, but Bethlehem, the promised land, was not their home. In fact, they had never been to Bethlehem before. It had never been their home before. So for Naomi, the question had to be asked, how would she now, returning with nothing, be able to provide for two more people? 
In fact, Naomi, upon returning home, had to know in her mind that she was going to have to count upon her family to help them out. And so the question that she had to wrestle with is would her family, who now Naomi had to rely on, even take in these Moabite women? Would these two foreigners, these two enemies to Israel, even be welcomed in the midst of the promised land? So think about what Naomi must have been experiencing in this moment as she told them to go back to their families. You see, Naomi had to live out her days. Even if she'd have returned to the promised land with them and they with her, she would have had to live out her days seeing these two women. And not just seeing them, but in her own bitterness, seeing them and being reminded of her own choices that led to her own sin. You see, upon seeing Orpah and seeing Ruth, Naomi would have been reminded daily of her choice to leave the promised land and ultimately the consequences that then followed her. I mean, just think about that for a moment. Think about what that must have been like for Naomi to know that every time she looked at Orpah, every time she looked at Ruth, she was going to be reminded of the hand of God's judgment that was upon her in Moab and how that judgment led to the loss of her husband and led to the loss of her two sons. I mean, the best way to describe this would be if Naomi returned with these two daughters-in-law and all of a sudden they were walking around kind of like the book, The Scarlet Letter. Do you remember reading that book? Imagine if instead of wearing a scarlet A on their top, they were wearing like a scarlet S or a, or a scarlet D, if you will, for disobedience. These women for Naomi were going to be like that, walking around, reminding her of the fact that she was now in the position she was in because of her choices that ultimately led to her disobedience, going away from the faithfulness of God and stepping into her own sin. So imagine for a moment the guilt Naomi must have felt. Imagine the, the moment of walking around the promised land thinking things were going to get better, only to be reminded by two women that everywhere you go, even in your own home, you were here because of bad choices. And so what does Naomi do? Naomi tells them, in essence, go home. Go back to the charity. Go back to the blessing. Go back to the welfare of your people. You see, Naomi understood that, that going with her may or may not have meant any hope for either Orpah or Ruth. She didn't know what awaited her when she got home, let alone two other Moabite women who didn't belong in the promised land. But then again, notice what is said in verse 14, when it says, And then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. We see two women make choices. The one being Orpah, who made what many believe is the sensible choice. She believed that if what Naomi was saying was true, then there was no hope for her to go with her mother-in-law back to her people. And so, like her mother-in-law, only seeing what's in front of her, not really seeing or understanding the, the long-term consequences of decisions, she made the choice to pursue what made sense for her. She pursued where she believed the greener pastures would be, which she believed was with her people. And yet the reality is this, as we know, because if you continue to read the text, this would actually be the last time we hear the name Orpah mentioned. Nothing is known about her. Nothing is known about what happened to her. 
And so what can we learn from her, from her brief moment in this story? We learn this, that what we do know is that the world's wisest choices to avoid emptiness, the world's wisest decisions that tell us to avoid facing our brokenness, dealing with our brokenness, can lead to a different kind of oblivion. It can lead to a life without meaning. It can lead to a life without significance. You see, this is what we do when we run from our sins, when we run from our problems, when we run from our mistakes. The problem is this, they always find us out. And so eventually we're just going to have to face them. I don't know about you, but I've learned quickly as I was growing up that no matter how many times you clean the floor, the more things you swept under the rug, the more your parents noticed. G.I. Joes don't sit flat under a rug. Learn that the hard way. Legos definitely do not sit flat under a rug. Our disobedience will always find us out. But what does this mean for Ruth? Ruth, who made the decision to cling to her mother-in-law, what would become of her? You see, Ruth was in the same boat as Orpah. She was a Moabite. She would not have been welcomed. And logic says that she should have gone back to her people. But notice what the text tells us about Ruth. It says that Ruth clung to her mother-in-law. Now, this phrase is important. This this clinging to her mother-in-law is important because we actually see the same phrase in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, when talking about marriage, it calls the husband to hold fast to his wife. In other words, this phrase describes the loyalty to a covenant commitment that has been made. And so what we see from Ruth in clinging to her mother-in-law, she is acknowledging that she is now glued to her mother-in-law and nothing nor no one could ever send her away from her mother-in-law. In fact, look with me again in verses 15 through 17. Naomi says, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said to Naomi, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. And may the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Pay attention in our story how Naomi tried to get rid of Ruth, but it wasn't happening. In fact, in in two verses, in verses 16 and 17, we see a, a crescendo of the commitment that pours out of Ruth's heart for Naomi. And then notice this about these two verses, how each commitment gets bigger and builds upon the one before it. It's almost as if Ruth is saying back to Naomi, look, I am committing to you my life. I'm committing to you heart and soul. I'm committing my body until my very last breath to you because I made a covenant to your son and I will honor that covenant. She even goes as far to to call upon Naomi's God and, and makes the promise to make Naomi's God her God as well. And then pay attention to verse 17 because then she makes the biggest commitment by saying that she will be buried with her. Verse 17, where you die, I will die. 
and there I will be buried. Now, many of us read this and we think, well, what's the big deal about that? That's not a big deal to us at all, but you got to remember where we are right now. This is, this is ancient history. This is, the, this is the ancient East, and this was the ultimate commitment that anyone could make to another person in the ancient world. And as if that wasn't enough, Ruth continues and says, and may the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth literally says that if she fails at keeping any part of this commitment that she has now made to Naomi, then she is calling upon Naomi's God to stretch out his hand and to strike her down. Ruth has now laid her entire life bare before Naomi. She has said, I am going to serve you selflessly. What we have in Ruth's words right here is an act of total surrender, an act of self-sacrifice. We are seeing in Ruth's words and her commitment to Naomi an act of grace, even though Naomi wasn't ready to receive it. Isn't that interesting how that works? Isn't it interesting how you fast forward to the Gospels and, and who was it that sacrificed themselves on the cross for us? It's Jesus Christ. Prior to that, who was it that showed us the greatest acts of service, even to the point of being obedient to death, death on a cross? Jesus Christ. Even in the midst of our disobedience, who is still faithful to his part of the covenant promise to us? Jesus Christ. But let's come back to our text and see where this goes. We see this incredible commitment made by Ruth. And yet in verse 18, we get these words. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. <laughs> I can read this story a hundred times and get to verse 18, and I cannot find a more anticlimactic verse in all of the Bible. I just can't. I mean, think about this for a moment. Ruth has given one of the most impassioned speeches ever. She has said, where you go, I'm going to go. Where you rest, I'm going to rest. Where you work, I'm going to work. Where you die, I'm going to die. Your God is going to be my God. We are together. We are family. I love you. I mean, it's literally like a football speech. Through the blood, the sweat, the tears, the hard work, we are in this together. Or better yet, if you've watched like a, any kind of movie where there's like this turning point in the movie where the main character all of a sudden gives this impassioned speech about Independence Day or, or whatever movie it is that you're watching in that moment, all of a sudden everybody gets fired up, ramped up, amped up, and it doesn't matter if they have sticks, they're ready to go to war. I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes I have to use some of these motivational speeches from movies just to motivate myself to cut the grass. But I'll tell you this, it works. Literally, Ruth has given us this impassioned speech, something that would motivate anyone and everyone. And how does Naomi respond? Nothing. No response whatsoever. And here's the irony of the whole point. Many of us know these words from Ruth. In fact, we probably have them memorized. 
I would dare to say that many of us may have these words in verse 16 and 17 painted on a canvas in our home or maybe stenciled on the walls of our home because we affirm and believe and hope that these words will be true not only of our church but of our family and of our homes as well. Yet Naomi heard these words and was so consumed with her own bitterness that she saw these words as anything but a welcome commitment that was ultimately wrapped in grace. Naomi and her bitterness missed the hope. Naomi and her bitterness missed the love. Naomi and her bitterness missed the goodness of God that was given to her in Ruth. And so we follow just how fallen and broken Naomi is at this moment. You see, at this point, we can, we can obviously tell. Naomi doesn't have to tell us. She has hit rock bottom. In fact, she hit rock bottom so hard that she can't even see the grace that's standing right in front of her in the form of Ruth. Church, can I ask you something? When we hit rock bottom, do we miss the grace that's right in front of us in Jesus Christ? Do we miss the grace that's right in front of us that tells us that this is not the end of our story? Well, let's continue reading. Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? So she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? You see, our story picks up with these two women now returning to Bethlehem, which clearly created quite the commotion. And so the women begin to ask themselves, is this Naomi? Clearly what we can see from them asking this question was the way Naomi returned. Her presence, her look, her appearance was very different from when she left. And notice her response, verse 20. She says, do not call me Naomi, rather call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly bitterly with me. Notice that Naomi, in the midst of her own bitterness, was now asking for a name change that ultimately matched her emotion. Naomi, whose name meant pleasant, was now being asked to be called Mara, which means bitter. In this moment, Naomi is admitting that she left Bethlehem with everything, and now she was left with absolutely nothing. Now think about those words for a moment. She just admitted that she returned with nothing. What does that mean for Ruth? What does that make Ruth to Naomi? Again, I want to remind you, faith family, in her bitterness, and and please think about this, when we allow bitterness to creep up in our lives, in her bitterness, Naomi is missing the grace that traveled with her. Naomi was missing the grace that now stood beside her. She said, nothing. I came home with nothing. And as if that wasn't hard enough to hear, think about the words that we just read in our text. We read words like two of them. There was the the word they said two times, and them. Clearly, we know from the text that Naomi and Ruth were present together. They both were physically seen. It's not like Naomi and Ruth showed up and Naomi went into her house and Ruth disappeared. They're together in this moment. Yet the women of Bethlehem welcomed Naomi home. The women of Bethlehem asked about Naomi. They didn't even take notice of her companion. They didn't even take notice of the woman that was standing with her. I mean, literally, Ruth is standing right there with Naomi. She was there with her, but she was not even noticed. 
I mean, just think, Naomi, Ruth could have responded in any way in this moment. She could have been like, hello? Like, she didn't come home with nothing. My name is Ruth. I'm here. I'm fine. Thanks for asking. Kind of been a tough year. But we're good. You would think Naomi, in this moment, would have come home with a broken spirit and a contrite heart. But rather, what we learn from her in this story is this. She came home bitter. And here's where bitterness led her. Bitterness in Naomi led her to anger with life. Bitterness made her angry with God. And so changing her name to Mara was actually the perfect name when you think about it, especially when you consider the history of the people of God. I mean, go back to Exodus chapter 15. You read a story of a place in the wilderness where after leaving the bondage of Egypt, the people arrived at a place and they found water, but they couldn't drink the water. And so they grumbled against God and they named the place Mara because the water was bitter. I mean, think about that for a moment. The people had just been delivered from Egypt. They had just witnessed the parting of the Red Sea. They just walked on dry ground, wall of water all around them. They had seen firsthand the faithfulness of God at work. And yet in the smallest of moments, they began to complain about the lack of water to drink. And they blamed it on God the God who had already proven himself to be faithful to them. So coming back to our text, like her ancestors, Naomi's heart was angry with God for the way her life was now turning out. She was experiencing the pain of life and felt that this pain was all God's fault. She even tells us that in verse 21 when it says that Naomi believed that the Lord had testified against her. She was blaming God for all that had taken place. Notice that she doesn't acknowledge her own choices. She doesn't acknowledge her own unfaithfulness that led her to this point. She's so simply resentful that the land of Moab Moab had led her away from the land of promise and only brought her emptiness. And she said, all of this is God's fault, the God who testifies against me. As one scholar notes of Naomi, he says, her body may have made the journey home, but her spirit was still far from restored. And brothers and sisters, i got to ask you, how often do we look at our lives today and amidst our choices when they're wrong, we want to blame others? How many of us look at our choices and, and when we're wrong and we get it wrong or we feel like our life is falling apart, we want to blame God for the mess that we've created? I hope that we can learn from Naomi and take a step back during conflict or even during sin, our own sin, and look to see where, where maybe we were the ones who made the poor choice. Maybe... Instead of being the ones who were wronged, constantly playing the victims, maybe, maybe we were the one who did the wronging. Sometimes we need to step back and think about that. So here's the question. What do we learn about grace at rock bottom? Because I'm going to go ahead and tell you, if you read the story again, it doesn't really sound like there's much grace in this moment. Naomi is bitter. She doesn't acknowledge Ruth. Ruth has given her her life, and it still doesn't matter. And not only does it not matter, they've now arrived in the promised land, and no one has even acknowledged that Ruth exists. What do we learn? The first thing I want us to see is this. Like Ruth, I want us to remember that we were once outsiders to the promise. Like Ruth, we were outsiders to the gospel. Man, we were all outcasts. All of us. We were all objects of God's wrath. And according to Ephesians chapter 2 and John chapter 3, we were once dead in our transgressions and sins, and we needed a new birth. 
We were all once in need of a Savior. We could not, by our own merit, by our own health, by our own wealth, by our family, find this hope. We needed to be adopted into the family of God. We needed to be adopted into the promise. We came in as an outsider, and we needed grace. We needed the God of Naomi. We needed the now God of Ruth to redeem us. All of us have been on the outside. And all of us have found ourselves longing to be a part of the promise. And thanks be to God that we have found hope in the promise that is Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Secondly, we learn this, that when we come to Christ, we have nothing to offer him. We came with nothing. We, we walked into the promise just like Naomi, saying, I have nothing. And yet it was Christ who received us. But not only did he receive us, he received us, and then he didn't just promise all of a sudden rainbows, unicorns, and daisies. He said, I'm going to receive you in my grace. I'm going to receive you in my love. But let me, let me assure you of this. This journey is not going to get easier. You see, the reality is, as those who are now a part of the promise, the promise that we now have in Christ, we have to realize that we are now called to be like Ruth. We are called to self-sacrifice. We are called to throw ourselves at the mercy seat of God, trusting in the faithfulness of God. And so here's the truth and the irony of our faith in Jesus Christ today. You see, the gospel itself is the easiest path, and yet at the same time, it's the gospel that is the hardest path as well. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. It's easy because we brought nothing to it. We brought nothing to our faith except our need for a Savior. We were wretched sinners, and that's how we were found. However, it becomes the hardest path. Because the reality is this, the cross continues to be a stumbling block to anyone or anything that we may think will contribute to our own salvation apart from Jesus Christ. It was all Jesus that brought us to salvation. At the same time, it's the hardest path because it's the path that continues to call us to die to self. It's the path that continues to tell us in grace we are to put the needs of others first. It means that now as believers under the covenant, believers under the promise, we are now called to pour out our lives onto the ones who have bitterness of spirit. In other words, we can't just walk away from brothers and sisters simply because they're bitter. Trust me, I know. I, listen, there are people that we have met, all of us have met them, and they have been bitter about one thing or another. And the thing that we probably want to do is this, walk out to our car, open the trunk, get the wood and nails out, and nail the door shut. And just say, stay in your home until you figure this mess out. But that's not what Christ has called us to do. He's called us to walk with people, even when the people are hard. To walk with brothers and sisters, even in the midst of their bitterness, to constantly remind them of the goodness and the grace of God that has now been given to us. You see, choosing the way of Ruth not only means identifying with Israel's God and his path, which is what she does, it also means identifying with the stubborn and frequently offensive flock that he now calls his own. 
And I'm going to tell you something. We're not easy people. We're not. That's not an excuse. It's just an acknowledgement. You see, for Ruth, there was no warm welcome for her. And yet, as we're going to see in the chapters ahead, it's going to be Ruth who commits herself to them. You see, that should be true of us today. We may often find the Lord's people to be a disappointing bunch. We may even find a group that calls themselves believers who may, who may point us to even begin to question our own beliefs, our own faith, or our even reasoning for wanting to be a part of the local church. Yet, if the Lord is to be our God, which is who we say that He is, then it means that His people must be our people too. Church, can I tell you something, whether you want to acknowledge it or not? You need one another. I need you. You need me. Let that sink in. We need the local church. I don't know how you feel about one another. I don't know what you think about one another. I don't know what what you're hearing, what you're not hearing. None of that matters to me. But we've come to a point where we should be able to look at our neighbors and say, man, listen, I I don't get you. I don't understand the things that you like. You don't understand the things that I like. That's okay. But you're my brother and sister in Christ, and so therefore I am here for you. I am here with you. I'm here with you, as Ruth said, heart and soul. Now, why should we live this way? Because, brothers and sisters, a person who is totally committed to the Lord and totally committed to the community of his people will, can, and will make a lasting difference on the life of another person in the flock. Can I tell you something, church? Don't miss the encouragement that comes from your presence. Naomi missed it with Ruth. But wouldn't it be great if in God's grace, when we were walking through the hardest of days, isn't it great when we have brothers and sisters to walk with us? Let's walk together with one another. Third lesson we see is this. Do not miss who God is bringing into our care. Here's what I mean by that. Don't turn your back on guests and visitors or people who come who may be different, whomever they may be. God may be bringing Moabites into the midst. So don't miss the opportunity, wherever that opportunity comes, whether it's through the local church or through the places of work. Don't miss the opportunity to point people to the goodness of God and the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. In other words, don't miss the mission. The mission itself of proclaiming the gospel is a form of grace. Do we understand that? We can share the good news of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we have experienced the good news of Jesus Christ. That was an act of grace. And now, as an act of grace, we have the opportunity to share that. Whether it's with our children, with our family, with our friends, with our coworkers, it's an act of grace to share the good news of the gospel. Don't miss that opportunity. Now, you may be here thinking that you can't do that right now because maybe you feel like your life is just in shambles. Maybe you're here today thinking, I don't even know where to begin to share the gospel because, man, I feel like a failure. Maybe you're here today and you're like, I can't share the gospel because I just feel like I'm a, I'm a hot mess. Well, can I tell you something? God's mission to rescue sinners is not limited by our flaws. God's, rescue, God's mission to rescue sinners is not limited by our failings. So brothers and sisters, stay the course. Meet people, share Jesus. That simple. Brings us to our fourth and final lesson that we get from this story today. And it's this, 
Like Naomi, I want us to be careful. Because like Naomi, we can grow bitter towards God. We can grow bitter towards God for what he has or has not done to us or for us. And so I want to share with you in the midst of our complaining. And here's the thing, we're going to complain. It's going to happen. We're going to vent. We're going to vent our frustrations. And that's okay. But don't let your frustrations turn you towards bitterness. Whether it's toward bitterness toward God, toward bitterness toward the church, toward bitterness towards people, believers in God. Don't let that happen. Because here's the reality. In the midst of our complaining, I don't want us to miss that God may have emptied our hands in order to fill us with something much better. You think God's done with you because you've lost your job? Think again. God has something better. You think God is done with you because of a diagnosis you've received or, or what you've been dealing with in your family? Think again, God has something better. You think God is done with his church? Are you kidding me? Read the Bible. He's going to do something better. Like Naomi, don't cling to the small treasures and the, the ridiculous nothings when, when God is seeking to fill us with something more. When God is seeking to fill us with something greater. Look for the next. Because God is up to something. And God has not forgotten you. It's like C.S. Lewis wrote. He said, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that the Lord finds our desires not too strong, but rather too weak. Church, don't settle and complain when clearly God has called you to something greater. Trust God. Even when the treasures that you think are treasures begin to subtract or they begin to divide. Don't undervalue the goodness of God because God wants to fill you with something more. And that something more is more of himself. Don't blame God. Do trust him. And this is the lessons we learn in our story today. And so we end with Ruth finding herself in a new place, Naomi, bitter towards God, and yet God is just beginning to show them his provision. He is just beginning to show them the grace that is found at rock bottom. Now again, I want to go back because we may read the story and think, man, is this thing ever going to get better? Well, good news. Read ahead. It does get better. But even better news, we today are living on the other side of the gospel story. Today, it's the gospel that answers our doubts. It's the gospel that tells us that, that God is, is using us for his own glory, seeking to be glorified in and through us. And it's God who has our best interests at heart. In other words, Christians, God has not forgotten you. God has not abandoned you. We may become bitter. We may become frustrated. But here's the reality. No matter how bitter or frustrated we get, God is always faithful. In fact, Jesus came to this earth, and if you go back and read, read Ruth 1, verse 16 again, but read it, read it through the lens of Jesus Christ where he says, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. That is the covenant that Jesus Christ made to us. And the reality is this, nothing, not even death itself, can now separate us from the glory of God that is found through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. So church family, we have been given the gospel. 
We've been given hope. We've been given daily bread. We've been given the opportunity to share of his goodness. We've been given the goodness that is found in his grace. We have been given the goodness that is found in grace for others to receive. So in Christ, let me say to you, we should never be bitter. Because in Christ, we live in abundance. Christians, I want to tell you, no matter how hard your life may get or how angry others may make you or how bad things may turn out, I don't know what your week holds. I'm going to tell you on my way over here, I read a story this morning where there are parents waking up finding out that their children were killed in a car accident, not here in another state. They are finding that out this morning. Just read about that on the news. And so I say all that to say this, life is fleeting. It's frail. We don't know how long we have. Secondly, I want to say this. We don't know what this week holds, but we do know the one who holds it. You and I, we are never alone in our heartaches. We are never alone in our struggles. Why? Because there is grace. Because even when we think we have hit our lowest of lows, even when we believe that we have now hit rock bottom, there is grace. Why? Because in grace, we see and we find that there is Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God that he is found in grace. Thanks be to God that he is with us daily. Thanks be to God for the glory that is found in him. Let's pray together.